I'm going to do a British accent today. Ladies and gentlemen from all over the world, welcome to the Devil's <laughs> You've entered the Devil's Advocate with Nick Stagg and Kenneth Kenneth Barton when every devil gets his day. Our you um Nick Stack, tristack.github.io, and sustainablehealthwealth.com. Kenneth Barton Kenny. I'm so glad you did not carry that through the whole <laughs> episode. <laughs> I would have died a lot. Uh, our mission statement is to shed light on and discuss all issues, great and small, with the idea that by doing so, we can entertain, enlighten, and educate others and ourselves in all areas of our lives and to have fun while doing so. And today's going to be kind of a special episode, folks. It's going to be about as live as we get because we are going to release this episode. Usually we we try not to timestamp ourselves and we go out of our way to be evergreenish in nature. And there's uh, a lot going on in the world of Japan and, and uh, a certain virus that we wanted to talk about that as part of our life in Japan. So this is going to be very timestamped and very... Yes. Dated. And timely. And timely, yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's get right to it. I'm going to save my book report for later in the okay. podcast. Intro is done. Life in Japan, coronavirus, or CR19 as it's called. It's also called the Huawei virus or the Wu-Tang virus. The Wu-Tang a, virus. I've, also, I've had that since I was in high school. Obviously, <laughs> obviously that's <laughs> a joke. Uh so what I'm are we done with the woo? What do we what do we know about the coronavirus nineteen? First off, it's interesting because I've heard spellings of it. In my mind, I guess is is virus capitalized when it's a name. So this should be coronavirus. Yeah. And as far as I know, the spelling is just flat out C O R O N A, like the drink. Yeah. So where did that name come from? Because I it's got the corona shape. It's it's the is that why it's the shape? Okay. Yeah. The Huanan virus has made more sense, mm-hmm. to me, but that's actually quite hard to say and remember. So I'm glad they went with the coronavirus. Yeah. So my outlet can... Well, I mean, there are many kinds of coronaviruses. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is just, just, just a new one. Oh, I get yeah. it. So like in this in the family... Of coronaviruses. Of coronaviruses, this is coronavirus 19. I see. Bingo. I see, I see. It evidently, they traced it back to... I mean, this is all... I mean, no matter how current we are, we could all turn out to be wrong here shortly, but evidently... Or they, we could all turn out to be zombies here shortly. Or dead... I mean, let's not look on the bright side, but they traced it back to some marketplace in Huanan province, China, where evidently people were eating live bats. I lived in China for a number of years, and I'm not surprised. China, shame on you for not doing a better job with your own healthcare system. And, you know, this is the thing is when you try to lie and cover stuff up, it's create a, uh, it creates kind of a, a culture of <gasps> lying and covering up. If they were more forthright and had better, I mean, it's a rich, rich country now. They could do better. Shame on you, China, in healthcare. Um, and the Chinese people, sometimes they, they got to wake up. You do not need to eat raw endangered species to get your yang on. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's, it's, you know, ridiculous. Now, having said that, nobody wants this. I don't want to blame young people that might get sick or might get old or who might get it because somebody sneezed on them. We can end up getting it. But I mean, I just think it's something that this isn't like a mystery where, oh my God, what's causing this? We know exactly what's causing it and where it comes from. And these are behaviors that are very, very easy to, to fix, I think. Sure. So, yeah. Ooh. What's your take on that, Kevin? Oh, well, I mean, I'm I'm just going to second second you on the uh, on the Chinese food part. I mean, I, it seems like a lot of stuff that 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 people eat in some countries is kind of a dare. <laughs> <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah and I want to make this clear too. It's not like, uh, for example, we've all heard urban legends about oh immigrants back in the day. Like my my most favoriteest, not my most favoriteest, but one of my 
favorite things to do is when people talk about racism is just show this old picture. You can find it if you Google it. Turn of the century, a big billboard up front that said, no Negroes, Irish, or dogs. Any new immigrant population in America, we have we happen to both be American, gets the brunt of things. Um, ironically enough, the first part of any culture that comes into like a new country, the first part to go is the language. The second part is the customs, and the last part, and this is great, is the food, and sometimes not at all. It, t- it typically gets uh, kind of assimilated, assimilated into the host or, culture. I don't right? say watered yeah. down, but I have you ever seen like real Italian pizza? Um, like eth- like Italian Italian pizza? I don't I don't know. I've never been to Italy. Is uh, that close enough? I just my friend. I wouldn't know. Is, I wouldn't know it if I saw it. My friend had a first was first immigrant. Immig- for, no shoot. Brain fart. First, are you telling me that pizza first hut pizza is not well, <laughs> real Italian pizza? <laughs> I am Ken. <laughs> oh my gosh! I am. What's that? Shoot, first generation American from a very Italian family, and he's like, "Yeah, my grandma pe- made pizza. It wasn't like that. It was just basically basil on a bread. It was almost like a dessert." And like strudels, another first immigration uh, German family. Their strudels, depending on what part of Germany you're from, they weren't sweet at all. They were basically fried dumplings. But they were served with, with chicken gravy and just delicious. So, I mean, food gets slightly homogenized but also bettered up. Like, I prefer the way Americans do pizza. Well, Americanized, right? Americanized. And Maybe we're, that's a we're, better word. We're kind of— Well, but I think, would you say that— We're biased. I mean, of like, British of course, you know, yeah. the, the, another example might be, you know, here in Japan— uh, they've definitely Japanese curry. They've ja- they've they've Japaneseified curry. They've yep. Japaneseified uh, pizza. Yep. So you can get uh, lots of corn and mayonnaise. Corn and mayonnaise. Peas all if you're in, lucky. And some fish eggs. All the great Which stuff. Which is actually quite good. Um, yeah. So our British people, I think, have definitely homogen Britishized Britain's uh, curry. It's not nearly as spicy. Ang- as Anglicized. It. Ang- oh, well, that's an actual hey, word. Yeah. <laughs> you silly Neely, we're making this look smart here. It's just a miracle. So, um, you know, yeah. So uh, my parents were asking me about it, and don't worry, Mom and Dad. The, the biggest thing, and this kind of deals with life in Japan, is the number of masks and the amount of panic buying that goes on in a typical run on something like this. And this is the part where I'm going to get angry. Do, do it, Ken. Go get mad. I'm hulking out right now. Okay. I'm turning green. Okay, maybe not. But, um what, the thing that's making me very angry about uh. this is that the Japanese government has decided in all their wisdom that instead of protecting the health and, you know, everything of, of the Japanese people, they sent all of the surplus masks to China. Is that why there's a shortage of That's masks? why there's a ah. shortage of masks, and that's why the inventory has not been replaced is because Japan sent all of the masks to China and all of the hand sanitizer. That is so funny because there has been... I should point out, Japanese culture, by and large, can be quite conservative compared to American culture. And the same thing happened during the SARS epidemic, I heard. And then I was here for 3.11, the big earthquake. You couldn't buy bread and TP toilet paper for a few days. And I guess that's the bad part. The good news is they all stuck together. They would do rolling black outages so that you know nobody went hungry or food. We all got, uh, those of us that were working at the time, got 60% of pay and were furloughed. So there are some very nice labor laws. But, yeah, that was totally handled very poorly. Mm. I thought there was just a run on stuff. I didn't know that that's the reason why. There was a little bit of A and a little bit of B. I see. But I would say that the uh, the B part is definitely, yeah. like, the reason why we still cannot have any masks. What did you think the first time you saw somebody where—they're called courtesy masks here. I don't know if—well, first off, they never really have caught on in America, nor do I think they will. What do you think? I, I think they definitely won't 
catch on in America because we have a kind of a tendency to, how do you say, what's the word? We're, we're scared of people wearing masks because yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. see their face. Villainize? Yeah, maybe just, we, we just we just feel un, unsettled. And mm-hmm. like, for example, like you can't go into banks or stores with masks on or helmets on and you can see both of those things happen here. Yeah, so. quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so when yeah. you first got on a train and saw a bunch of people wearing masks, what did you think? Uh, I was uh, giving them a, I was like mentally, spiritually giving them a fist bump because I, I wear gloves on a train. Do you really? Oh my gosh. You yeah. wear surgical gloves on a Not train? surgical gloves, dude. I mean, I, I have standards. They're, 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 they're leather gloves. <laughs> Would but anyone like a proctological exam? <laughs> exactly. Dr. Mike British. I'm doing, I'm doing uh, all kinds of checks. Yeah. Uh, can you turn your head and cough, please? Oh, um, no. So, no, I, I, I have leather gloves that I wear because okay. I I know this is this is kind of embarrassing, but if you are on the Nothing train, would be more embarrassing than my attempt at a British accent. So. <laughs> That's, that, that is true. <laughs> at least I'm not scraping the bottom yet. But um, what what I notice, I'm a people watcher on the yeah. train. I'm I'm unapologetic about it. It's something that gives me joy. Yeah. And what I see on the train is uh, people people uh, coughing and sneezing into their hand and then grabbing the grabbing the strap uh-huh. that uh, everybody else grabs, and uh, or they pick their nose and then grab the strap. And uh, it just makes me like, ah, and inside. So I I just uh, I just wear gloves, and I don't have to worry about it. I don't touch anything if I'm not wearing gloves. Do you ever just lick the uh, the The pole? Yeah, oh, all the time. (laughs) Love a good pole, (laughs) salty. (laughs) Oh my god, (laughs) a little oily. And uh, yeah, so I'm I'm a little weird about that. Yeah. So for me, I guess the first time I saw it, I was actually living in Korea, which is very similar to Japan in this regard, in that some kid came to school with an obvious cold and he was wearing a mask. And I came to find out that's sort of the custom here is you don't miss work because of a cold. You just wear a mask. Or if you're like almost dead, you, you wear should, a mask. Yeah, wear a mask and come, come and to work. Go on. Yeah. Which I, I give them like credit for having heart, but I just think that's so mean and cruel. In my mind, I thought, you poor kid, if you're so sick that you have to wear a mask, go home and rest. My God. Yeah. You know, what is this world coming to? But that's very much kind of the way it is here. So that's one level of it. Um, we'll and that's also the, contributing to the spread of coronavirus now is that doctors, they because they're short-staffed here in Japan, they still go on rounds and they still have to show up for work even if they don't feel good. And so you've had a lot of outbreaks in hospitals, doctors giving it to other patients. Oh, good gravy. Yeah, good gravy. That's not nice. No. And but part of me also thinks so. That's one more. That's about the mask. I just wanted to talk about how what an odd thing it is when you get on. Oh my lord, the train today! Do you think half the people were wearing masks? At, le- at least a third. Yeah, maybe half. Maybe sixty percent on my train. Okay, mine was at least half. But the thing about it is actually that's not so different. People wear masks pretty much every day. Actually, I wear a mask every day, not just um, because of that, but because one, it makes me look so good. It's, it's a joke. Because and then <laughs> two, it really is good for my nose and my throat and things like that. You're breathing kind of warm air. And I, I, don't, I don't mind them once you get used to it. And I have to really pinch them around the top of my nose so that, um, I, that doesn't, it, they don't steam up my glasses. But I quite enjoy masks. It doesn't bother me at all. It's something about Japan that I quite I, I admire the fact that they take that much, in a way, care about other people. Now, obviously, the argument is if you're that sick, don't get on the effing train. So I don't know if there's a way to prevent that, but I do admire them for that, and I respect them for, for that ability to kind of carry on. Um, 
that was the mass thing. That's the Corona thing. Oh, the Corona thing in general. I'll just say a friend of mine is a doctor. We all have known doctors in our lives. And his point was that a flu for better or for worse is, these are his words, nature's way of kind of getting rid of the sick and the old. And I know that sounds very cruel, but that's typically what flus do. It's not uncommon. And is this just another flu? Is this a pandemic? I think in my mind, I don't know, the amount that you can really trust any government, not just the Chinese government, but any government on any given time about anything like this. There are other viruses we don't know about. There must have been other flus that just didn't make the news. Whatever reason, I do think this is being sensationalized and at least as much as SARS was for those of us that were around in the early 2000s. And is this something to be cautious about? Absolutely. Is this something to you know hide in your room about? Absolutely not. I, I think we have to get on with our lives. And it's true. I, I really hope that they don't cancel. What they've done with the marathon this year is they've canceled it to the public. That's right. Um, the Japanese, the Tokyo Marathon, very famous marathon. And then they've, um, what's the word, professionals only? Or yeah, professionals only. Medalists yeah. or whatever. There's a word for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, professionals. <laughs> it's open to them uh, only, which is a shame because I was in the Tokyo Marathon. It's a lot of fun. But I think that's one thing to do. And SARS lasted about seven or eight months. This started in November, so fingers crossed. By the time the Olympics roll around, it'll be... In the thick of it. No, no, oh, it should be over. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope <laughs> we should be in the thick of it over the next two months. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. And I hope this doesn't turn into like a, you know, a pandemic or something. Of course, but you never can tell. Sure. And, uh, yeah. So we just have to uh, just be careful. Yeah, be careful. Use common sense. Don't lick poles. Wear masks. Wash your hands. I have to refrain from my favorite hobby: licking pole licking the, the subway pole. Yeah. <laughs> So that's the coronavirus. I, I think people don't panic. And I don't know. Part of me thinks, too, if people are going to get sick, you know, we do our best to limit it. But, heck, let them get sick. Let the, the immunities get out there and get on with lives. Hopefully. Yeah. The other thing that I've got is pollen, which is Oh, yeah. Issue. Talk about that. Yeah. Which, you know, the masks are also effective yes. for. Uh, here we have two main culprits. Mm. We have cedar and cypress mm. pollens. And they, they both kill me. They both mm. really try to kill me um and today i forgot my allergy medications at home so i'm just suffering through life do you use the nasal which i find to be like a smart missile really gets in there and gets the job done or do you <laughs> really take like a benadryl there. no yeah. I, I take uh, i take uh, like a benadryl okay a japanese version of a benadryl yeah. you know i really like that uh dry mouth uh, kind of uh buzzed feeling that you get from if you take too many of those things that's no joke slick i mean it is mm-hmm. whammo i mean yeah. that's that's nuts well, i lived on those for a long time yeah. in the states <laughs> god when the first time i tried it i didn't know there was such a thing as over-the-counter allergy medication and i every july and august i would just die and we were in deadwood of all places deadwood south dakota for having on like the tail end of the bike rally i was working there that summer i was a as an actor and my friend was like here were you on the show deadwood i no, not that show. I was I was a uh, Wild Bill Hickok three times a day, six days a week. Oh wow! Yeah, just like this mom and pop show. It was in the Bullock Hotel. I think I can say that name. It's, it's interesting. But um, the guy gave me a, a Benadryl, and it was like, oh my god, I've got my life back. <laughs> and since then, another doctor in Japan actually recommended a nasal spray that has, I believe, it's a type of cortisone. Mm-hmm. So I try not to use it every day, but it works very well. And none of the side now that might be a bummer for for Ken, but none of the side effects of allergies that one typically gets yeah so mm, i'll think about it. i i just I, I try to stay away from the the uh nasal sprays 
Why? I heard you can get addicted to them. Like you're you're physiologically get addicted to them. Wow. Like if you stop doing them, you'll have some. Like Q-tips, as we discussed in our one of our previous like episodes. Q-tips, yes, that's right. You can get addicted to Q-tips. And I can see why people would get addicted to allergy meds, too. I mean, they, they do they do provide a little extra oomph. Benadryl drugs. Like, well, the first time I took a Benadryl, I thought it was great. And then one time I took two or three by accident, and I felt by like accident. I was— Well, I just was like, I'll take one more. This doesn't quite hit in the spot. And then mm-hmm. I just felt—like, yeah, my hair was all tingly on and super— <laughs> Not a good feeling at all. But I could see how somebody, if they were really... Well, this is a really weird one. Have you? It used to be called robing or... You mean chugging Robitussin? Yeah, dude. Oh my gosh, I heard about that. I've never done it. I wouldn't want to do it. I just, like, uh... Yeah, no thanks. (laughs) It seemed like a little little trashy. Do you have any... (laughs) We and that's, that's a pretty low. We just have to drink it. It's a pretty low bar right, <laughs> for Ken. <laughs> it was even too trashy for Ken. Oh so. my lord! Yeah. <laughs> when I was in college, it wasn't even it wasn't even Nyquil. It was like Tylenol's version of it, like Tyquil mm-hmm. or whatever the heck it's Tyquil. called. <laughs> Tyquil. Bill, I don't know. No, my friend was like, we were having very nice woman, didn't not into that kind of thing at all, and had a few beers and took Nyquil and was like, all of a sudden we we found her outside by the back step. We're like, yeah. what are you what are you doing? Yeah. I don't know where I am right now or how I got out here. We're like, okay. So be careful, people. That's yeah. how you know you're having a good night when you don't know where you are <laughs> or how you got there. <laughs> I woke up asleep in the or, snow. Or you went to Rapungi. Oh, good gravy. <laughs> That's not. How many times have you been to Rapungi? Uh, during the day only and several times, but yeah. never at night. Okay. It's not, not a place where I should be. When I first came to Japan in 2000, I visited, and of course that was like, that was after the gas attack, and it was tail end of the bubble years. Right. Well, just after. Well, I mean, yeah, just yeah. after the bubble mm-hmm. years. But in my mind, Tokyo was very a different animal than it is even now. Oh, sure. Went there, and it rhymes with. I remembered it because it was like repugnant, and mm. I was. That's okay. a, that pretty much sums it up, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's <laughs> just it's a lot of whatever. Whatever. Yeah. But if, if definitely you, not you... want to chug a bunch of cold medicine and go there if I could help it. No thanks. Uh, yeah, if you're looking for like grossness and people degrading themselves, then yeah, maybe look Rapungi. no further yeah. than Rapungi. Right. There's a few of those places here in Tokyo. That yeah, but bummy about Rapungi is unlike the rest of Asia, it was expensive. Yeah, super and expensive. So like, you, like there's places if you go to like gutter trash places, you know, the boondocks in like Korea or Taiwan, you can have a good time and you can have it for cheap. Mm-hmm. But there, it's very not. I'll say one other quick thing about life in Japan, then we'll, we'll get started. Is that the zoning of places. So, for example, in my my city, I don't want to say the name of the station, but if you take, are you in, like, can let me just ask you sure. this: Are you in Tokyo or I'm in one of the suburb, like suburbs of directly. So, for example, if you say like Tachikawa, mm. Chiba, okay, all these places are growing faster than the inside of Tokyo because right. there's more bang for your buck. Sure, the cost performance is high. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And then anytime you go out one of these stations, first off, they're very hub stations, so they're. I mean, I bet my commute is less than other people that quote unquote live in Tokyo. There's no transfers. About half the time I can get a seat. It's just not so bad. And when you get off the station, this is what's strange is right. There's always a police box, a coban. And then around that area, right outside the station, you will find everything from like a convenience store to a place called Don Quixote, which is like a Western import store to very legitimate, nice restaurants to very legitimate izakayas to cabaret, which is not so legitimate to you know, hotels, love hotels in Japan, which are infamous f- for uh, being 
basically, if you go to a, a hotel in Japan and you are alone, they will find you a girl. I mean, they're frequented by, 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 you know, by, by workers. These are important services. Yeah, but it's odd to me because they don't, like, that can literally be next to a family restaurant or a oh, family-ish yeah. restaurant. They and I'm just and they don't bother each other. You never have to worry about your kids seeing it. But it's odd how they zone stuff or or don't. Right. Yeah. Just like general entertainment districts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but what if I want to go with my kids? You go to the same place as this sex addict. Exactly. It's like, exactly. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Thanks, Jimmy Job. Um, yeah. Well, okay. Let's start it here. So we wanted to just basically talk about the coronavirus. We've done that. Let's let's get into the Farnham Street blog. How did you come across that, Ken? Because you introduced me to it. Oh, how did I get into it? Um, I don't remember which came first. There was there the I, I I'm, I'm let me just tell you a story then. Okay, my, my story that I'm going to tell you may be true. It may be opposite of this. I don't know. But this is my story. My story is... And you're sticking um, to it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm going to stick with. Uh, I was introduced to the Farnham Street blog by a column that the author Shane Parrish wrote about reading books, like how to read a book, right? And he's got... Uh, he, he's like assembled uh, def- different... <clears throat> points of view from from several different wise people throughout history about how to read a book everything from like browsing and only reading the parts that you need to you know going really in depth into into how to read and then once i was there uh i saw that he was also into mental models Mm. and he also has a really good podcast which is the knowledge project with shane parish yeah this is a great one because he's he gets all kinds of people um, uh, let's see, let me see, let me see. Neil Pasricha, uh, Esther Perel, Daniel Kahneman, uh, Jim Collins, um, who else? Jonathan Haidt, uh, so many really interesting guests on his blog and they, they all talk about how they do things differently or the mental models that they use in order to be successful at what they do. Hmm. Can you define a mental model for us, for those that might not have heard? Basically, a mental model is just a tactic for how to think of something in a different way. So could it relate to making decisions, or would it only be about... all about making decisions. Okay. Yeah. So like uh, you you come across a certain problem that you have, and you can take uh, mental models from history. You can take mental models from the military. You can take mental models from biology evolution, psychology, sociology, like wow. so many different things. And you can you can put what we've learned in these to look at any given problem. And some of them are going to be applicable, some of them aren't. But the idea is you know, if you have a wide variety of mental models available, these are all just tools that you can use to think about something in a different way to help mm. you come up with a better uh, outcome than mm. you maybe would have if you were just going to go with your gut. Mm. Interesting. What got us out? We were just—I think we were just talking about it one day, and then you mentioned it, and, and um, I got into it because you described this website as basically he tried to write down and collect. I mean, it's so simple. I wonder why I didn't like yeah. ideas from the past that have worked. Yeah, that's and right. Like, why well, hasn't uh, anybody else done done that? this? Yeah, yeah, why didn't I think of that? Right, and <laughs> and it's. One thing for better, I don't care when we timestamp this one, that really bugs me about, especially America, is we've gotten so far away from people believing in facts or truth or just basically lying about stuff or manipulating stuff to their own end. Sure. And I think that's absolutely false. There there, there are true and false. I'll give you an example. Is they have, um, I saw this on Facebook. They have two people looking at 
a, a figure. One person thinks it's a six, and one person thinks it's a nine. And the the first caption was, "Maybe we're both right." And I know that's sort of a uh, like a hippie thing, but somebody replied, "No, it's not." And then they drew a line, and how like six and nine is is confusing. So we always draw a line underneath the bottom of the line. Right. When you spread the camera uh, under out, the bottom of the number, right? Yeah. So if it's yeah, a yeah. six, you have a yeah number at the base. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then I just thought that is such a very valid point because I was, and I know that it, somebody basically making fun of that idea that, you know, it is, now it is easy to get um, ideas mixed up. And I think we're, we're always changing. Sure. You know, what is, what has your mind changed about this last year? I, I like to think a couple different things for me. You want the alphabetical list or yeah. chronological? Or like yeah. uh, it was a great guest on Bill Maher, who she was the woman that founded PETA. And just what we think about animals now, as opposed to when we were kids, you know, circuses were, I would never, I will never take my kids to a circus or a zoo. Sure. And that wasn't the case growing up. And I don't blame my parents because we just didn't think about that, right? I'm sure there were people that didn't think they were doing harm by, uh, you know, I was going to say slaves, but I think even then they, they must have known because there was an abolitionist movement way back in the day, but um, uh, unleaded gasoline. Sure. You know, so we, we, we change, we grow. And so just having this asset was there. So what we were both going to do is pick one thing and kind of talk about it. Okay. Um, which let me talk about my, my book report quickly. It's called Lynchpin. It's a book by a gentleman by the name of Seth Godin. There's several Godin. Seth Godin. Oh, you've heard of him? Oh yeah. Oh, he's okay. He's a he's a big big deal. Interesting. Yeah. I had never he's heard a, of him. I just what, what's yeah. what's the guy you like the the turns out guy? Yeah. <laughs> what's his name? Uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell. Seth Godin is like a marketing business Malcolm Gladwell. Is he? Yeah. He's, Interesting. He's a huge deal. Okay. I, I Googled um, life-changing books or 25 books to for self-improvement. I love reading stuff like that. And one of his, his books popped up, and so I, I got it, and I'm listening to it. And so far, I'm into it, and it's a bit like uh, – have you – what's the uh, – Who Stole My Cheese? Who Moved My Cheese. Who Moved My Cheese. Yes. Have you heard of that or read that? Yeah, I did. Many I years did. ago, some it's something that like somebody's going to give you for some reason. <laughs> yeah, well, you can <laughs> like find it you, online for free. Like, That's where I, I uh, yeah. people who graduate, somebody's going to give them a copy of. Yeah, uh, pretty of much. That and book. what it just says is change the inevitable. You have to get with it. And in prior episodes, we talked about that may be true, but things are happening so rapidly. Da 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 da. Mm. And so this book so far is interesting. It's motivational. Not a lot of advice so far on what to actually do. Yeah. So I hope he digs a bit deeper into that, but. Um, that led me to my choice on the Farnham Street blog because when I was looking up those books for most influential books, what's always up there is the Dale Carnegie, How to Make Friends and Influence People. Oh, sure. Yeah. Have you ever read that book, Ken? Uh, I've not. I've okay. avoided that one like the play. Why? Because yes. of the name? That's uh, why I avoided it for years and I read it. It's probably still one of my top three. The name sounds horrible and cheesy. I'm not going to lie. Uh, Spill I, it, Ken. I, why? I looked through it. I, I did like a cursory run through huh. of the book and I was just like, Meh, and then I just put it back. Okay. What I liked about it were well, many different things, but I ended up reading it. I'd heard about it and heard about it. And then what the guy that gave me my tattoos mm-hmm. was like a big advocate of it. And I always avoided it because of the name. I'm convinced if it had a different name, if it didn't sound so like cheesy and fake, sure. that I would have read it a long time ago. Because it really is a good book. And what it does is it gives you a bunch of hard and fast and ready techniques hmm. on how to make friends and influence people quickly. And there's a list of rules that the final street gets into. I'll go over some of them. But the biggest thing is it's actually dated in turn of the century. And sometimes the language is a bit antiquated. But real world example. So one example they gave was Roosevelt and Taft. 
President Roosevelt, who was at the time just, just you know, super famous and known for, you know, living life to the fullest and judo lessons in the White House. Sure. Uh, there's a rumor that he studied jujitsu even with the guy that that also taught jujitsu to the Gracies. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Back it was about that same time period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, hard to confirm or deny it, but uh, and they talked about how Roosevelt and Taft were great friends, and Taft was his handpicked uh, successor, and that when he ran for president, he went after Taft so hard that Taft, who was you know overweight anyway, one of the things Roosevelt went after was his weight, hmm. and Taft described, you know, I may have won the election, but I've lost my best friend, and it just it's really sad. All for criticism. That's one of the biggest sure. things it talks about in the book is, you know, don't criticize people. Mm-hmm. So I, I really enjoyed that book. And tell you what, we're up against a hard break. Why don't we take a, a small break? Okay. And we'll get into the uh, Farnham blog. So stay with us, people. And we're back. Yay. So we did a little uh, in-episode research. And to, to, to put a ribbon on the linchpin theory of the book is basically the world is changing take advantage of it. He doesn't really say how or why yet, but it's interesting that Ken had heard of him before and he's kind of a big deal, huh? Yeah, pretty big deal. Yeah, good. So I'll let you know if the book has anything else interesting. In the meantime, did you want to talk about the the one from the blog that you liked or should I talk about mine? Because what I I discovered was he has, this is on the Farnham blog, he has a summary. It's titled The Best Summary of How to Win Friends and Influence People. And he goes over the major points. And what I don't think he can do justice to, first off, I really recommend that book. It's not as cheesy as it sounds. It gives a lot of real-world examples. For example, it was written um, in the 1930s or 40s, and it's sort of like, for those of us that like reading self-help books, you get a chance. It's a really interesting read. Is is uh, The Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you just read it for what it is, it's quite interesting. But the knock on both books is that they use a lot of, like, he was a sport he couldn't cut the mustard. <laughs> he had his Timothy down the leery hole, like all these like turn of the century. Like he was a good chap. Like like they used a lot of like. I like the cut of his jib. Yeah, like the things <laughs> we don't really say anymore. But a lot of them are still poignant. And actually, how to make friends and influence people. They go in very specific, actual. Like I've read other books about managing people and stuff like that, and they'll be like, Company A does this. Company here they say the real name. So what I think the example I was just telling Ken during the break was Roosevelt and Taft were good friends. Taft was Roosevelt's hand-picked successor. And then when Roosevelt ran for president, he ended up trashing Taft so much that Taft, you know, got really suicidal about it. It was really sad. That's terrible. Yeah, and just all from being criticized. So one part of the book is that you never criticize people. If you want to be a a good guy, don't criticize anyone ever. Another chapter is nobody wins an argument. Basically, never argue. Yeah. And it— I mean, that's that's true from my own life. Yeah, right. I've seen that so many times. Now, the only problem with the book is I I put this book into action, and it works. People will like you when you will have friends. It will make you, to some extent—basically, if you follow all the rules, you end up being kind of a lapdog. And at the time, I had a very, very, very— this cruel, vicious boss mm-hmm. who's working in a nightclub. Mm-hmm. And he would walk all over you. If you give an inch, he'd take 10 miles. Right. And I had to finally eventually get away from that book because it doesn't really teach you sort of how to stand up for yourself well other than just maybe taking action and not sure. criticizing the action. But just moving through some of the – it does give you a pretty good – like techniques. and Don't criticize, condemn, or complain. Give honest and sincere appreciation. Arouse the other person in an eager want. Six ways to make people like you. Become generally interested in other people. That's true. Smile. Um, I read another book that's called The Pickup Artist. It's about these guys that kind of the turn of the of the 21st century. I see. Um, how to, one of their techniques is called peacocking. You basically dress oh, right. really nice and walk into a bar and just yeah. draw attention to yourself yeah, that yeah, way. Yeah. Smile. Part mm-hmm. of having a smile is kind of a big idea. So 
it goes you over talked the, about that with, with our incels uh i boy episode yeah well the, the, i hadn't read the book then but i see um uh, but there's some flaws in that book as well too. no of course yeah. it's just part of the story of the incels oh like okay the, okay a lot of people that signed up for this guy's course were they weren't true incels dangerous, but they were people that were shy or lonely. Sure. Yeah. It's so, like there's techniques that they use there. It's like it's called peacocking. You dress up really nice. And the other one is called negging as in negative. So N-E-G. So basically if you walk up to a girl, uh, like there's a lot like if you make eye contact, you have to act within three minutes. They're very, very systematic. But like one thing is instead of like. Giving a compliment. Yeah, you actually say like, hey, that's a nice overbite. <laughs> right. But it's just one of those things where it's Looks just, good on you, though. <laughs> yeah, or just, it's, but it's, it's, it's uh, they, they, they go into more in-depth in the book, too. But basically, it's just human nature. People want what they can't have. And then you sort of blow them off, and you wait for them to come to you. And it doesn't always happen. But it, again, it's a numbers game. If you do that to 10 different you know people in the bar, mm-hmm. even if four or five come back, you're in good shape. But I think that's the other part that they don't make light of is how many times they fail. And sure. Is it ethical or is it moral? And right. All these other things. So, um, and in fact, another great book about managing or just another good book about life I read was um, Seven Highly Effective Habits of Highly Effective People. Seven Habits of or, Highly Effective Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Everybody's read that one. And I read it for the first time like 10 years ago, made no sense. I started mm-hmm. managing people and it was the best book that was ever written. <laughs> and actually he in that book actually goes after how to make friends. He's like, a lot of books will teach you techniques that don't really work. Right. You have to go the extra mile and like all these other things. And I get his point too. I could summarize it like, like only have win-win negotiations, only operate in your sphere of influence. There's a lot of really good things in, in both of those books. So um, definitely read it. But I think maybe the danger of this blog is that if you just read it without the examples and the work that, uh, that were put in by the original, by Dale Carnegie, it's mm-hmm. you will miss you, you won't be a believer, and if you don't believe it, you won't really do it as well. Right, right. If that makes any sense. So, like, the, the commitment that you put into reading such a book will kind of, like, sign you up to, to kind of, like, have that same yeah, point well, of view. when you see, because, like, look at these examples. Look, I'll give you one big example is, okay, criticism. Let's see if I can find it on criticism. This is a quote from the blog. Uh, well, here's two quotes. Pardon me. I oh, do he's not, talking about criticism yeah. in the book. I believe it. Criticism is futile because it puts a person on the defensive and usually makes him strive to justify himself. Criticism is dangerous because it wounds a person's per- precious pride, hurts his sense of importance, and arouses resentment. Any fool can criticize, condemn, and complain, and most fools do. But it takes character and self-control to be understanding and forgiving, which I love that quote. Here's another one. is That reminds me of this famous quote by Thomas Carlyle. A great man shows his greatness by the way he treats little men. And and to be fair to the gentleman that wrote, I can't remember his name right now, uh, seven, the Seven Habits book, I, if you read How to Make Friends and Influence People, he literally says, this won't work if you fake it. You have to put your heart and soul into it. Sure, right. Or people will smell it a million miles away. Yeah. And I think actually they're very different books. One is more like if I'm going to be in a knife fight tomorrow, when I, what do I do? One is if you've got time mm-hmm. and a chance to build relationships. Mm-hmm. So I think they're actually very different books. And it's mm-hmm. interesting that one kind of, he didn't come right out and say it, but definitely I felt like he was taking a crack at it. So right. uh, my advice would be to use this blog. Here's the hack, I guess, is read it. Find something you like, you know, try it. And then if you want to go more, definitely read the original works. I feel like otherwise you're just missing too many of the finer points on how. Yeah. Uh, what would you say about about, about this one? Yeah. Uh, I, well, first of all, Ken has never read How to Make Friends and Influence People. Not. Shame on you. I know, for shame. Can we make each other read stuff? Like, I will read a book I absolutely can't stand or would never read if you oh, know, wow. that you recommend if vice, vice I would. Have, I, would have, I would go. 
I would have to like reach very deep in order. Let's to do it, man. I'd love to be exposed. You think to this is a good idea? Chin. Yeah. I think I think my days are too few to waste time on on books that I don't like. You can read it fast. Oh, can I? <laughs> you can have it. Yeah, I can use, I can the, use the things I learned on Farnham Street blog. Yeah. To, yeah. Um, I'll yeah, talk. Yeah, the I mean, other thing that interested me here was warfare. They talked about counterinsurgencies, mm-hmm. which were basically like uh, some of the examples. And I'm just giving it just the, the briefest of mentions was uh, if you read books about like the Texas Rangers, they were the only group that really had any luck with with the, some of the Native American tribes in that area of the world. Like the, the, the oh, pardon me, the Cherokee, I believe, and the Comanche. Comanche, pardon me, were known as being very cruel to their people when they when they kidnapped them or, sure. or took captured them, prisoner. them, took them prisoner yeah, yeah, and things yeah. like that. And basically the Rangers had success. And, you know, a, a lot of it is, I think, just due to the changing of the world, Buffalo being gone, those types of things. But a lot of it, too, is the Rangers were very effective because they just they held no quarter as well. There's a great Netflix thing. It was called The, the Highwaymen about the people who got Bonnie and Clyde, and they were Texas Rangers, retired, that got brought off the shelf. And actually after that, Rangers were reinstated, and they're still around today. So, yeah. So go uh, ahead, let's Kenny. see. Uh, thing, things you want to talk about mental liked, models? That's well, yeah, the mental models mm. that I really liked. There was uh, one about um, understanding normality, like uh, how wow. how things happen in a in a population, and how huh. how like a given trait is assumed to be uh, normally distributed. So you have like the uh, modal. Uh, how do you say the the mean and the mode and the median right. are all the same number, and that that's the average and. Huh. So, for example, IQ is assumed to be normally distributed with 100 being the mean, uh, the mean intelligence, mm. I guess. And then as you move away from that, you notice that the, the population gets smaller and smaller. So as you, as you go up like standard deviations, like 15 points, uh, you lose a lot of the population. And by 30 points, you've lost almost everybody. And by 45 points, it's just a tiny little tail, right? And that goes on both sides. So if you, even if you go below 100, uh, the, it really quickly levels off. And uh, so, like, understanding how things are distributed is interesting. Uh, what else? It also helps you understand how uh, another one is another mental model that is related to this one is uh, regression to the mean. So if, for example that you can make this work for you. Uh, one practical example might be if you take a, if you take a college entrance test and you score, uh, around the, the average score, Hmm. you should definitely take it a few more times in order to, because you'll, you'll practice effects and, and things like that. You will score higher. Uh, probably. Um, but if you get a really high score, do not take it again because you'll probably, uh, you'll probably score less. Interesting. Yeah. So um, interesting things like that. Another one is uh, anti-fragility. Have you heard of this word? No. What is it? So, fragility as in like getting your feelings hurt or like? Oh, you know, I, I am pretty snowflakes. Fragile. I'm pretty fragile. Well, no, because I mean, it's, no. I, okay. The, the thing is, is <laughs> the thing about it is that uh, some systems are fragile. So, for example, like if you drop, drop a, a teacup or okay. something like that, or uh, even like at some ecosystems are also very fragile. So if you break them, they break and that's mm. it. Yeah. But uh, other things are anti-fragile. One example is our immune system. It gets uh. stronger with challenges, ah. right? And same, same with uh, how 
people deal with challenges. Okay. Yeah. Like mentally and, and, and emotionally. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So anti-fragility is something that was coined by, I think, Nassim Taleb, who's Mm. a, who's like a genius. Yeah. Somebody. I don't always agree with him. I read another one. Interesting. If I believe one of his books was called something about randomness. No, maybe so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. So I think those are some very interesting mental models. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Shane Parrish has written at least one volume of, a, I think, my, I may be wrong about, about this, but no, about uh, mental models. Like uh-huh. He's like talking about every mental model that's, that he can come up with uh, that people use. So. Well, the regression towards, was it regression towards the mean? That's right. Okay. That's interesting because there's, that's basically why people aren't nine feet tall. Right. So, so basically, people will get taller. Groups, of, uh, countries will get taller at any given time, and then they'll kind of regress to the mean. So right now, the tallest people in the world are the Dutch. Yeah. Which reminds me of that Austin Powers joke. Like, I hate people that don't have respect for other people's culture. And the and Dutch. The Dutch. <laughs> yeah. And my, my good friend, I nicknamed him Big Dutch Robert. His sister is like 6'2", gorgeous, and uh, airline stewardess, but it's a tall, tall country. And Americans, I believe, right now are getting a bit shorter. Really? Yeah, but for the longest time, it was in the Civil War. Guess what the average height of the average soldier on both sides was? No idea. 5'8". Five 5'8". Eight. Five eight. Weight? 125. 145. 145. Yep. And then we appear to, uh, well, I don't know if we've ever been we, as big as the Dutch, but, no, but that regression no. to mean is why. But what's interesting, if you compare that, to example, with animal husbandry, mm-hmm. because... Oh, boy. We might have to edit this whole part out. But, for example, in America, the notion that blacks are better athletes is completely untrue because if that was the case, Africa would win all the gold medals in every Olympic Games ever. But if you look at American African-Americans or people of African descent, I don't think it's anything to do with being superpowers, but if that was the only way out of a bad economic or social situation mm-hmm. and your grandpa was a big guy who liked to play football and your dad was a big guy who liked to play football, chances are you're going to be a bigger guy that likes to play football. Could be. I don't think it's that far of a stretch. I wonder where husbandry plays a role in that as well yeah. as, a, as opposed to ascension. Or does it violate that law because it is literally animal husbandry? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's difficult to say. I mean, uh, y- you are uh, <laughs> like tiptoeing around a lot of really scary subjects. Oh, I am, but it's right? they're very yeah. But yeah, right? it's very it's very interesting uh, because there's there's uh, a lot of how would you say like uh, uh, select like selecting different traits that yeah. you find uh, adva- advantageous. Yeah, but, I mean that also works on an evolutionary level anyway, mm. right? Like. Right. If whatever's going to increase your chances of uh, procreating and passing along your genes is going to be selected for. Right. Uh, and that's not necessarily a good, it's not always a good thing, but. Well, what I run into issues with that is like, oh my God, do you remember eugenics? Yeah. It's like, oh, you look like a criminal. Let me measure your head. Yeah. I mean, it's just a really, really not that. Right. Right. Or Hitler. I just watched a documentary. It's a great documentary on Netflix called World War II in Color. Watch it, people. It's the best documentary about World War II I've ever seen. The, the color part actually wears up. They just got a lot of really good information. Like, I had no idea that Hitler was such a drug-addled lunatic <laughs> by the end. Like, I knew, I'd, I'd heard he'd done speed or whatever, but he was basically doing heroin and speed every day, given to him by Dr. So-and-so. Yeah. He had somebody to deliver him powders all the time. Yeah, yeah. And, like, the Battle of the Bulge was rumored. Well, I mean, it's not, like... Um, that soldiers, German soldiers were on meth for that. But they also think, well, I mean, they've pretty much got it documented now that they were also on it during the big Blitzkrieg because that's about how long you can stay awake on drugs is about three to four days. 
That's about how long it took. So really scary. But no, it is scary. I mean, to me, the worst part is this is on Oprah. There, politically correct police. Um, one of the biggest slave breeders of her time was this woman in New Orleans, and she kept track of just it was sad. It was sadistic. Sixteen females and between four to eight males. Mm. And she kept just like horses. And wow, it was just terrible. Really, really sad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that's does that prevent regression to me? Does or here's my big argument: is for example, I saw a documentary on the Discovery Channel about how why people think, and it, this is false. Why, for example, people like lighter skinned people might be because it's easier to see blemishes. So, oh, that person is sick; they have smallpox, for example, or oh. something that would prevent me from breeding with them. But hmm. my, to my mind, if that's the case, that wouldn't make any sense because in a hot climate, you'd want someone with darker skin. So by that rationale, wouldn't the quote-unquote darker skin person be more, be, make a more effective mate? So I think there's a lot of holes in anything like that that you might try to study. Well, it's not. It's, it's Other than regression to the mead, which just mm-hmm. kind of keeps us from being nine feet tall, which makes sense. Sure. So, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's very interesting. And I, I definitely... Uh, uh, you will find Shane Parrish on a, a number of different podcasts too. He he likes to make guest, guest appearances on things uh, outside of his own podcast, and mm. they're always very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that about wraps it up, I guess. Uh, just today's quick review. Did you do anything else, Kenny? Um, I I was going to give my book report. Oh, please! What I? Oh my lord! It's okay. Like we we kind of went out of order, so oh, yeah. that's fine. So, uh, I've been on a poetry kick. Good gravy. I know it's weird. I, I It's rare that this happens. But yeah. I, I was somehow introduced by... I was uh, going to make a joke. It's rare that any man reads poetry, but that's obviously <laughs> not the case. Historically, there are many, many great men poets. Um, so, yeah, one that I was recently introduced to is David White. That's okay. W-H-Y-T-E. All right. And he has a number of really good poems. Uh, one was called Enough, uh, and uh, I'm not going to read it for you. Can you give us a snippet? No. Why, why do you like this Poetry so I, I think he has a very interesting mix of kind of he's a he's a he's from England yeah. and so his mother was Irish his father was English he grew up in England and he also studied Zen Buddhism as well so he's oh, wow. got this really interesting uh, mix of these two different cultures mm. and he's also lived in many places all over the world. He's a huge traveler, lived on the Galapagos Islands and such. Mm. And so he has some really interesting poems. And I, if you can read, if you read his poems, you're going to get a lot out of them. But I will highly recommend listening to his poems. The way he reads them, oh my gosh, he's got a great voice. I would pay him to read me bedtime stories. He's so amazing. And uh, so I really loved it. He's also got a TED Talk titled A Lyrical Bridge Between Past, Present, and Future from August 2017. It's really nice. Uh, Two books from him, Where Many Rivers Meet and The Bell and the Blackbird. Both of those are really good. And also, one of our coworkers, Nick, one of our coworkers introduced me to another poet, Mary Oliver, and she wrote a poem called Hurricane. So I, it really it really uh, touched my heart. I really liked it. And it's from a book called A Thousand Mornings. What's it about? A hurricane. <laughs> Literally. <Hi. Okay. laughs> Something about uh, Mary Oliver, if, if you read her, uh, I've read several of her poems now. Mm. And I, I'd say almost all of them that I've read so far have had to do with being in a forest or trees or something like that. So uh, she's very interesting. What's yeah. the draw to poetry? 
I don't know. Just uh, it, I'm just feeling it these Where days. Where the language is. Like, I like Shakespeare. He was iambic pentameter, but to me it was still a, a great story. Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. fact that it happened to be poetry was just an added plus, I guess. But Yes. Interesting. I've always, I've had times with poet, poetry, you know, Rumi and uh, confessional poets like Sylvia Plath and Sexton. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. There is a poetry and open mic on Sunday nights somewhere fairly close to where we are now hmm. in Tokyo. Hmm. Check that out. Maybe so. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Poem guy. Oh, I, I'm not writing them. Or at least I wouldn't admit to it. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote, oh my God, I wrote some just horrific poetry. I mean, everybody I in high has. School. Yeah. I got, I heard this Andrew Lloyd Webber song and I was like, it was Dreamweaver. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm going to write poetry. And I yeah. don't know what I was thinking. I was going to throw it out, but my mom hid it for me because she thinks it's so funny. <laughs> and like one of my ex-girlfriends were like, I was just trying to woo this girl like in my early 20s and right. read it and just laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed at me. So there's nothing like being laughed at and laughed at and laughed at by a girl who you're trying to woo. Right, of course. To make you maybe rethink your your strategy. Your strategy is a poet. And I'm never going to Recon- be a poet. I'm going to reconsider my day job. <laughs> Good. Anything else then? Nothing. That's Good. it. That's Good. all I got. Yeah, a very nice episode then. Thank you very much for your time. No, thank you. Um, just in conclusion, yeah, check out new things. Check out everything we've said here. Uh, check out the Farnham blog. Mm-hmm. And I will link will be in the show notes. Link will be in the show notes. In my mind, it's best to just get a taste of something there and explore what you see. The World War II in Color is on the Netflix. The Linchpin is the book that yeah, I am by Seth Godin. Now, by Seth Godin. And the other book is called The Pickup Artist. And I will see if I can find that. Can I tell you a really funny story about that? Sure. Is I was trying to, like, one of the things it talks about in that book is how to kind of hypnotize people. And I tried it and it didn't really work on them, hmm. but I felt like it worked on me. I felt like <laughs> I was, so I think I've been hypnotizing myself. And basically hypnotism comes in ranges, but one thing is it doesn't take that much. Like one of the first stages is basically a daydream. Mm-hmm. And what you're supposed to do is look into someone's right eye and mm-hmm. just kind of stare. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's supposed to kind of hypnotize. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to do it to Ken right now. Right. Ken, do you feel anything? No. Okay. Well, I do. And I kind of, but then <laughs> I kept thinking like, Maybe this is working. Maybe it's just me. And wouldn't that be funny if, like, <laughs> quit hypnotizing people? Like, right. <laughs> so yeah. doesn't work. Peacocky might. We'll let you know. And, uh, yeah, stay green, people. Thank you very much for your time. Okay. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Bye.